Chapter Six of the Riddle of the Sands. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gesine. The Riddle of the Sands, by Erskine Childers. Chapter Six, Schleifjord. I make no apology for having described these early days in some detail. It is no wonder that their trivialities are as vividly before me as the colours of earth and sea in this enchanting corner of the world. For every trifle, sordid or picturesque, was relevant, every scrap of talk a link, every passing mood critical for good or ill. So slight indeed were the determining causes that changed my autumn holiday into an undertaking the most momentous I have ever approached. Two days more preceded the change. On the first, the southwesterly wind still holding, we sallied forth into Augustenburg Fjord to practice smartness in a heavy thresh, as Davies put it. It was the day of dedication for those disgusting oilskins, immured in whose stiff and odorous angles I felt distressfully cumbersome, a day of proof indeed for me, for heavy squalls swept incessantly over the loch, and Davies, at my own request, gave me no rest. Backwards and forwards we tacked, blustering into coves and out again, reefing and unreefing, now stung with rain, now warmed with sun, but never with time to breathe or think. I wrestled with intractable ropes, slaves if they could be subdued, tyrants if they got the upper hand, Creeping, craning, straining, I made the painful round of the deck, while Davies, hatless and tranquil, directed my blundering movements. Now take the helm and try steering in a hard breeze to windward. It's the finest sport on earth. So I grappled with the niceties of that delicate craft, smarting eyes, chafed hands, and dazed brain, all pressed into the service, whilst Davies, taming the ropes the while, shouted into my ear the subtle mysteries of the art, that fidgeting ripple in the luff of the mainsail, and the distant rattle from the hungry jib, signs that they are starved of wind and must be given more, the heavy list and wallow of the hull, the feel of the wind on your cheek instead of your nose, the broader angle of the burgee at the masthead, signs that they have too much, and that she is sagging recreantly to leeward, instead of fighting to windward. He taught me the tactics for meeting squalls, and the way to press your advantage when they are defeated, the iron hand and the velvet glove that the willful tiller needs if you are to gain your ends with it, the exact set of the sheets necessary to get the easiest and swiftest play of the hull. All these things and many more I struggled to apprehend, careless for the moment as to whether they were worth knowing, but doggedly set, on knowing them. Needless to say, I had no eyes for beauty. The wooded inlets we dived into gave a brief respite from wind and spindrift, but called into use the lead and the centreboard tackle, two new and cumbrous complexities. Davis's passion for intricate navigation had to be sated even in these secure and tideless waters. Let's get in as near as we can. You stand by the lead was his formula, 
So I made false casts, tripped up in the slack, sent rivers of water up my sleeves, and committed all the other gaucheries that beginners in the art commit, while the sand showed whiter beneath the keel. Till Davies regretfully drew off and shouted, Ready about, centre plate down, and I dashed down to the trappings of that diabolical contrivance, the only part of the Dulcibella's equipment that I hated fiercely to the last. It had an odious habit, when lowered, of spouting jets of water through its chain lead onto the cabin floor. One of my duties was to gag it with cotton waste, but even then its choking gurgle was a most uncomfortable sound in your dining-room. In a minute the creek would be behind us, and we would be thumping our stem into the short hollow waves of the fjord, and lurching through spray and rain for some point on the opposite shore. Of our destination and objects, if we had any, I knew nothing. At the northern end of the fjord, just before we turned, Davies had turned dreamy in the most exasperating way, for I was steering at the time, and in mortal need of sympathetic guidance, if I was to avoid a sudden jibe. As though continuing aloud some internal debate, he held a one-sided argument to the effect that it was no use going further north. Ducks, weather and charts figured in it, but I did not follow the pros and cons. I only know that we suddenly turned and began to battle south again. At sunset we were back once more in the same quiet pool among the trees and fields of Als Sound, a wondrous peace succeeding the turmoil. Bruised and sodden, I was extricating myself from my oily prison and later was tasting, though not nearly yet in its perfection, the unique exultation that follows such a day when, glowing all over, deliciously tired and pleasantly sore, you eat what seems ambrosia, be it only tinned beef, and drink nectar, be it only distilled from terrestrial hops or coffee berries, and inhale as culminating luxury balmy fumes which even the happy Homeric gods knew naught of. On the following morning, the thirtieth, a joyous shout of, Nor'west wind! sent me shivering on deck, in the small hours, to handle rain-stiff canvas and cutting chain. It was a cloudy, unsettled day, but still enough after yesterday's boisterous ordeal. We retraced our way past Zonderburg, and thence sailed for a faint line of pale green on the far southwestern horizon. It was during this passage that an incident occurred, which, slight as it was, opened my eyes too much. A flight of wild duck crossed our bows at some little distance, a wedge-shaped phalanx of craning necks and flapping wings. I happened to be steering while Davies verified our course below, but I called him up at once, and a discussion began about our chances of sport. Davies was gloomy over them. Those fellows at Sartrup were rather doubtful, he said. There are plenty of ducks, but I made out that it's not easy for strangers to get shooting. The whole country's so very civilised. It's not wild enough, is it? He looked at me. I had no very clear opinion. It was anything but wild in one sense, but there seemed to be wild enough spots for ducks. The shore we were passing appeared to be bordered by lonely marshes, 
though a spacious campaign showed behind. If it were not for the beautiful places we had seen, and my growing taste for our way of seeing them, his disappointing vagueness would have nettled me more than it did. For, after all, he had brought me out loaded with sporting equipment under a promise of shooting. "'Bad weather is what we want for ducks,' he said. "'But I'm afraid we're in the wrong place for them. "'Now, if it was the North Sea, among those Frisian islands.' "'His tone was timid and interrogative, "'and I felt at once that he was sounding me "'as to some unpalatable plan whose nature began to dawn on me. "'He stammered on through a sentence or two about wildness "'and nobody to interfere with you, "'and then I broke in, "'You surely don't want to leave the Baltic?' "'Why not?' said he, staring into the compass. "'Hang it, man!' I returned tartly. "'Here we are in October, the summer over, and the weather gone to pieces. "'We are alone in a cockle-shell boat at a time when every other yacht of our size is laying up for the winter. "'Luckily we seem to have struck an ideal cruising ground, "'with a wide choice of safe fjords and a good prospect of ducks, "'if we choose to take a little trouble about them.' "'You can't mean to waste time and run risks.' "'I thought of the torn leaf in the log-book. "'In a long voyage to those forbidding haunts of yours in the North Sea.' "'It's not very long,' said Davies doggedly. "'Part of it's canal, and the rest is quite safe, if you're careful. "'There's plenty of sheltered water, and it's not really necessary. "'What's it all for?' I interrupted impatiently. "'We haven't tried for shooting here yet. "'You've no notion, have you, "'of getting the boat back to England this autumn?' "'England?' he muttered. "'Oh, I don't much care.' "'Again his vagueness jarred on me. "'There seemed to be some bar between us, "'invisible and insurmountable. "'And after all, what was I doing here? "'Roughing it in a shabby little yacht.' "'utterly out of my element, with a man who, a week ago, was nothing to me, "'and who now was a tiresome enigma. "'Like swift poison, the old morbid mood, in which I had left London, spread through me. "'All I had learned and seen slipped away. "'What I had suffered remained. "'I was on the point of saying something which might have put a precipitate end on our cruise, "'but he anticipated me. "'I'm awfully sorry.' he broke out, for being such a selfish brute. I don't know what I was thinking about. You're a brick to join me in this sort of life, and I'm afraid I'm an infernally bad host. Of course this is just the place to cruise. I forgot about the scenery and all that. Let's ask about the ducks here. As you say, we're sure to get sport if we worry and push a bit. We must be nearly there now. Yes, there's the entrance. Take the helm, will you? He sprang up the mast like a monkey, and gazed over the land from the cross-trees. I looked up at my enigma, and thanked Providence I had not spoken, for no one could have resisted his frank outburst of good nature. Yet it occurred to me that, considering the conditions of our life, our intimacy was strangely slow in growth. I had no clue yet as to where his idiosyncrasies began and his self ended, and he, I surmised, was in the same stage towards me. Otherwise I should have pressed him further now, for I felt convinced that there was some mystery in his behaviour which I had not yet accounted for. 
However, light was soon to break. I could see no sign of the entrance he had spoken of, and no wonder, for it is only eighty yards wide, though it leads to a fjord thirty miles long. All at once we were jolting in a tumble of sea, and the channel grudgingly disclosed itself, stealing between marshes and meadows, and then broadening to a mere, as at Ecken. We anchored close to the mouth, and not far from a group of vessels of a type that afterwards grew very familiar to me. They were sailing barges, something like those that ply in the Thames, bluff-bowed, high-sterned craft of about fifty tons, catch-rigged, and fitted with lee-boards, very light spars, and a long, tip-tilted bowsprit. For the future I shall call them galliots. Otherwise the only sign of life was a solitary white house, the pilot's house, the chart told us, close to the northern point of entrance. After tea we called on the pilot. Patriarchically installed before a roaring stove, in the company of a buxom, bustling daughter-in-law and some rosy grandchildren, we found a rotund and rubiscund person, who greeted us with a hoarse roar of welcome in German, which instantly changed when he saw us to the funniest broken English, spoken with intense relish and pride. We explained ourselves and our mission as well as we could through the hospitable interruptions caused by beer and the strains of a huge musical box which had been set in honour of our arrival. Needless to say, I was read like a book at once and fell into the part of listener. "'Yes, yes,' he said. "'All right. There is plenty ducks. "'But first we will drink a glass beer. "'Then we will shift your ship, Captain. "'She lies not good there.' "'Davies started up in a panic, "'but was waved back to his beer. "'Then we will drink together another glass beer. "'Then we will talk of ducks. "'No, then we will kill ducks. "'That is better. "'Then we will have plenty glasses beer.' This was an unexpected climax, and promised well for our prospects, and the programme was fully carried out. After the beer, a host was packed briskly by his daughter into an armour of woollen gaiters, coats and mufflers, topped with a worsted helmet, which left nothing of his face visible but a pair of twinkling eyes. Thus equipped, he led the way out of doors, and roared for Hans and his gun, till a great gawky youth, with high cheekbones and a downy beard, came out from the yard and sheepishly shook our hands. Together we repaired to the quay, where the pilot stood, looking like a genial ball of worsted, and bawled hoarse directions while we shifted the Dulcibella to a berth on the farther shore close to the other vessels. We returned with our guns, and the interval for refreshments followed. It was just dusk when we sallied out again, crossed a stretch of bogland, and took up strategic posts round a stagnant pond. Hans had been sent to drive, and the result was a fine mallard and three ducks. It was true that all fell to the pilot's gun, perhaps owing to Hans' filial instinct and his parents' canny egotism in choosing his own lair, or perhaps it was chance, but the shooting party was nonetheless a triumphal success. It was celebrated with beer and music as before, while the pilot, an infant on each podgy knee, discoursed exuberantly on the glories of his country 
and the Elysian content of his life. There is plenty beer, plenty meat, plenty money, plenty ducks, summed up his survey. It may have been fancy, but Davies, though he had fits and starts of vivacity, seemed very inattentive, considering that we were sitting at the feet of so expansive an oracle. It was I who elicited most of the practical information, details of time, weather, and likely places for shooting, with some shrewd hints as to the kind of people to conciliate. Whether he thought of me, or warmed with sympathy towards the pilot, for he assumed that we had done with cruising for the year, and thought us mad enough as it was to have been afloat so long, and madder still to intend living on so little a ship, when we could live on land with beer and music handy. I was tempted to raise the North Sea question, just to watch Davies under the thunder of rebukes which would follow. But I refrained from a wish to be tender with him, now that all was going so well. The Frisian Islands were an extravagant absurdity now. I did not even refer to them, as we pulled back to the Dulcibella, after swearing eternal friendship with the good pilot and his family. Davies and I turned in good friends that night, or rather I should say that I turned in, for I left him sucking an empty pipe and aimlessly fingering the volumes of Mahan, and once when I woke in the night I felt somehow that his bunk was empty, and that he was there in the dark cabin, dreaming. End of chapter 6 Recorded by Gesine in May 2007